Welcome to Rumble with Michael Moore. This is Michael Moore, and this is my podcast. And it's Martin Luther King Day 2020. This is my first podcast on a Martin Luther King Day, which is very cool. And I was thinking yesterday, what should I do? And I started writing some things and uh, writing about the first time I think I remember hearing or noticing Martin Luther King. I think it was in third grade. Uh, He came to Detroit and held a March for Freedom down the main street of Detroit, which is called Woodward Avenue. And 125,000 people came out to march with him. Back in that time, 125,000 people marching anywhere was unheard of. And, you know, this was the same year, 1963, as the uh, Martin Luther King's uh, March on on Washington and his great speech there at the Lincoln Memorial. So I was immediately taken with the concept of of who he was and what he stood for going to Catholic school. It seemed very, um, he seemed like he was very saint-like in that sense of of fighting for the greater good. And so I was taken with him. The fourth grader, fifth grade, sixth grade, seventh grade. And I wrote about this in my in my book, um, that um, on the evening of April 4th, 1968, um, it, it was the week before Holy Week, you know, leading up to, to Easter. I remember it was at a Thursday night, uh, mass and i can't remember if i was the altar boy or not i seem to have a memory of that but i'm not quite sure here's what i do remember from that night when mass was over back in that day the dads would all kind of leave a 30 seconds to a minute early to go warm up the car i mean april in michigan is fairly cold and so they all go out to warm up the cars and when i say warm up the car i mean the heaters back then did not come on uh, right away so you'd have to sit there and let the heat circulate. And finally, by the time us kids and moms all got out to the cars, uh, they, they would be semi-warm. And the radio would warm up and come on. And um, so we're coming out of the church. I can still see that front uh, side door that would that entered out into sort of a driveway parking lot. You know, this is an, essentially a, an all-white uh, Catholic church as most of them were. And uh, I remember walking out the door um, with my mom and my sisters, the other parishioners, and one of the dads was standing up on the this like floorboard that kind of stuck out a little bit from the car. Not really, but, you know, back in the day. And he's got his, his head and his chest raised above the cars so we can all see him. And he shouts out, They've shot Martin Luther King! A cheer went up, not by everybody, but I'd say a good third of the people were very happy to hear this news. Now, I'm in eighth grade at this time, and um, I think I was more in shock at the reaction of people who were cheering this than I wasn't hearing the actual news that Martin Luther King might be dead. And it made me sick, really, looking around these people. Why would they be happy? Why were they cheering? It was confusing to me. At that age, I was 13. I write a little bit more about this in my, in my, in my book, so if you want to read it, so I'll 
talk about it some other time. I don't want to talk about it on today because today I want to celebrate um, Martin Luther King. I just want to acknowledge that I know the country I grew up in. I knew that a good chunk of its citizens were filled with hate and, and remain filled with hate uh, to this day. The fact that we could in 2016 elect a president who had a platform position of racism, literally, who was a proud and happy bigot and a bully. Wow. I just, to think that what I witnessed there in eighth grade to the time that we're living in now, it's an, it's a really rotten feeling to think on some ways that it might've been, it might have actually been better in some ways back then because I don't know, could we get 125,000 people in Michigan, the state that voted for Trump? Could we get them to go on a march for freedom these days with our black leaders in this country? I don't know. But I know what we're living in right now, and that's what I want to deal with. And I want to deal with it by, essentially, I want to turn today's podcast over to not my voice, but the voice of Martin Luther King Jr. Um, I, I'd the bulk of the next half hour or so are going to be the words, the actual words in his voice of Martin Luther King Jr. And I'm going to play some audio from him that will not be played today in most of the tributes to him. It will not be played on the evening news as they remember him. It's the side and the part and the, the essence of Martin Luther King that has not only, it hasn't been forgotten right from the get-go, it was important for those in power to shape the Martin Luther King that they wanted to be remembered in history and to beat back um, and um, suffocate the real soul of this man and turn him into whatever version of a Hallmark card you would have for Martin Luther King Day. So I want to I want to use this podcast, this little bit of time here today to go against that, to share with you the Martin Luther King that you were not taught in school, the Martin Luther King that is not on the evening news uh, tonight, the Martin Luther King that has been conveniently forgotten, and you'll see why once you hear him speak um, in his own words. Actually, I I sort of got the idea for the theme of this for today. I read something last year on Martin Luther King Day written by Katie Halper. Uh, Katie is a writer and a comedian. Uh, she has her own podcast over at Rolling Stone, Rolling Stone with uh, Matt Taibbi. Um, she's she's really brilliant and uh, a force for good. And last year, um, she wrote this piece. I think it was for Common Dreams uh, uh, for their website, and it was called "The Eleven Most Anti-Capitalist Quotes from Martin Luther King Jr." Now, before you think that this is just going to be some kind of diatribe uh, against uh, capitalism, which there would be nothing wrong with that, I want to I want to tell you, especially younger people who weren't alive back when Martin Luther King was alive, that this man <laughs> saw capitalism, especially we're now we're talking about the modern day capitalism. We're not going to go back into history. We're talking about the a system of greed, a system where the few at the top have the many that's everybody else, serve them so that they can become uber wealthy and everybody else uh, struggles for the crumbs that are, are left. Martin Luther King was against this system 
Um, in many speeches, he pointed out, especially near the end of his life, that we were never really going to get rid of racism and poverty unless we got rid of an economic system that was cruel, that was unjust. And he began speaking out against this system of greed and against the war in Vietnam. And you'll hear him talk about this in, in one of the clips today from a, a speech from 1967, the year before he died, a speech called The Three Evils of Society. And he speaks here of the three pieces of our society that have corrupted us and, and are destroying us. And they are uh, racism, militarism, and um, an economic system that is based on these so-called principles of capitalism. So anyways, Katie put together these, uh, these 11 things, and I just, I'm going to read you just a, a couple because I couldn't find uh, audio tape of Martin Luther King uh, uh, saying these things. One of them, obviously, because one's a letter to his soon-to-be wife, um, Coretta Scott. Back in July, July 18th of 1952, he wrote her a letter. This time, I believe they're engaged to get married. They will be married the next June, June of 1953, in her, in her mother's yard. Uh, they'll be married by his father, Martin Luther King Sr. And um, one interesting uh, trivia note from history is um, the wedding vows that were very common at the time, they were the same vows are, were spoken like at every single wedding. You didn't write your own vows. Uh, of of what, uh, you know, you say your name and I promise to do this and that and all that. And the words where she had to promise to obey her husband, she purposefully removed them from the from the wedding ceremony. This literally, I'm telling you, this was not done in 1953 by anybody. It was a kind of a, I'm, I'm sure if you were in the backyard of the, of, uh, of the Scott family that day, um, a lot of heads turned. <laughs> like people on the on the king side were probably, "Whoa, <laughs> who are you marrying?" And uh, the people on her side were were like, probably, hopefully, just uh, cheering her on and thinking, um, "That away, way to go! Yes, this is gonna be a great marriage." Anyway, so he wrote her a letter. He wrote her a letter, and I'm only gonna read you uh, essentially a sentence or two uh, from it. The uh, previous July nineteenth, July eighteenth, nineteen fifty two. Um, the letter reads sort of like, it's kind of a, like, not a warning, but sort of a, okay, listen, I have to be really, really upfront and transparent with you before you marry me. You really, really, really have to know who I am. I mean, I know you know who I am, but I mean, you really have to know what I'm thinking and what I believe in and what I'm about. So he, he's right. He's writing this stuff in the letter and here's a, here's a part and I'm quoting, I'm quoting now from the letter from Martin Luther King Jr. to Coretta Scott. I imagine you already know that I am much more socialistic in my economic theory than capitalistic. Capitalism, he says, capitalism started out with a noble and high motive, but like most human systems, it fell victim to the very thing it was revolting against. So today, capitalism has outlived its usefulness. This is like the coming clean letter that he's writing to his uh, soon-to-be wife, just so she knows what's what's what with him. Now, I mean, not many people are, you know, obviously when you're getting married, you're not like, by the way, you need to know that I 
I prefer 2% milk to whole milk. <laughs> it's not that kind of letter. This is like, I mean, you have to understand here, I'm, I tend more toward uh, socialistic thinking here. And uh, capitalism, hmm, not so good. Kind of out, outlived its usefulness. But that's who he was. That's who he was. This is, this is he's writing this three years before Rosa Parks didn't give up her seat on the, wouldn't move to the back of the bus. Three years before the Montgomery bus boycott. Three, three years before, you know, anybody ever heard of him. Um, I'm, I'm trying to think of how, how old would he have been in 1952? 20 something. Yeah. 20 something. 20, I'm guessing 23. 23 years old. He's already got this thought out. He's, he's, he's gone to seminary school and he's telling his wife this. Nine years later, he's speaking to the, what was called the Negro American Labor Council. These are, these were black union members and black union activists. I'm quoting his words. Call it democracy or call it democratic socialism, but there must be a better distribution of wealth within this country for all of God's children. It wasn't uh, a new idea that came to him in his later 30s before he was killed. Uh, he was thinking these thoughts very early on and talking about it, not getting much coverage because, uh, let's face it, uh, the powers that be, you know, they're all fine sometimes with a kumbaya, but uh, not so good um, with things that might question their power. This first clip I'm going to play from Martin Luther King Jr. Um, was a speech that he delivered at the 11th Annual Southern Christian Leadership Conference Convention in Atlanta, Georgia, on August 16, 1967. The title of his speech was, Where Do We Go From Here? And this is a very powerful um, speech, if you ever get to listen to it in whole. He talks a lot about how black America needs to uh, turn its strength into organizing and political power, and he cites Walter Ruther, the found one of the founders of the UAW, and the United Auto Workers Union as an example of what he means. And, and then he talks about love and power and how we need both, and you can't have one um, without the other. Um, he also brings up an idea you're going to hear um, called uh, universal basic income. <laughs> yes, those are the Andrew Yang. Um, that's the main, one of his main platform points is that there should be every adult should get a thousand dollars a month. Um, this is not a new idea. This was an idea that Martin Luther King had civil rights leaders had it. Uh, George McGovern, the 1972 democratic candidate for president had it. Even, even Nixon and some Republicans on some level thought that a guaranteed income was necessary, um, just because you can't have and, and I think in one of these uh, clips today, Martin Luther King talks about there are 40 million Americans living in poverty, but he's saying this back in the 60s, 40 million living in poverty. Today, the official numbers from the Trump administration are there are 40 million Americans living in poverty. Now, we know the way they're counting this is not right, and it's probably more like 70 million or more, um, but it was just, it was interesting to hear him say 40 million, obviously there's less Americans back then, but still, um, that we'd still be at that same number and that we hadn't progressed or advanced uh, any. 
Um, anyways, let's uh, let's play this clip from August of 1967, Martin Luther King Jr. Um, in his speech uh, in Atlanta, Georgia. Where do we go from here? Now, another basic challenge is to discover how to organize our strength into economic and political power. And no one can deny that the Negro is in dire need of this kind of legitimate power. Indeed, one of the great problems that the Negro confronts is his lack of power. From the old plantations of the South to the newer ghettos of the North, the Negro has been confined to a life of voicelessness and powerlessness. Stripped of the right to make decisions concerning his life and destiny, he has been subject to the authoritarian and sometimes whimsical decisions of the white power structure, the plantation, and the ghetto were created by those who had power both to confine those who had no power and to perpetuate their powerlessness. Now, the problem of transforming the ghetto, therefore, is a problem of power, a confrontation between the forces of power demanding change and the forces of power dedicated to the preserving of the status quo. Now, power properly understood is nothing but the ability to achieve purpose. It is the strength required to bring about social, political, and economic change. Walter Ruther defined power one day. He said, power is the ability of a labor union like UAW to make the most powerful corporation in the world, General Motors, say yes when it wants to say no. That's power. Now, a lot of us are preachers, and all of us have our moral convictions and concerns, and so often we have problems with power. There is nothing wrong with power. Power is used correctly. You see, uh, what happened uh, is that some of our philosophers got off base. And one of the great problems of history is that the concepts of love and power have usually been contrasted as opposites, polar opposites. So that love is identified with a resignation of power and power with a denial of love. It was this misinterpretation that caused uh, the philosopher Nietzsche, who was the philosopher of the will to power, to reject the Christian concept of love. It was the same misinterpretation which induced Christian theologians to reject Nietzsche's philosophy of the will to power in the name of the Christian idea of love. Now, we got to get this thing right. What is needed is a realization that power without love is reckless and abusive, and that love without power is sentimental and anemic. Power at its best. Power at its best is love, implementing the demands of justice, and justice at its best is love correcting everything that stands against love. And this is what we must see. 
as we move on. Now, what has happened is that we've had it wrong and mixed up in our country. And this has led Negro Americans in the past to seek their goals through love and moral suasion devoid of power, and white Americans to seek their goals through power devoid of love and conscience. It is leading a few extremists today to advocate for Negroes the same destructive and conscienceless power that they have justly abhorred in whites. It is precisely this collision of immoral power with powerless morality which constitutes the major crisis of our time. And we must develop progress, or rather the program, and I can't stay on this long, that will drive the nation to, to a guaranteed annual income. Now, early in the century, this proposal would have been greeted with ridicule and denunciation as destructive of initiative and responsibility. At that time, economic status was considered the measure of the individual's abilities and talents. And in the thinking of that day, the absence of worldly goods indicated a want of industrious habits and moral fiber. We've come a long way in our understanding of human motivation and of the blind operation of our economic system. Now we realize that dislocations in the market operation of our economy and the prevalence of discrimination thrust people into idleness and bind them in constant or frequent unemployment against their will. The poor are less often dismissed, I hope, from our conscience today by being branded as inferior and incompetent. We also know that no matter how dynamically the economy develops and expands, it does not eliminate all poverty. The problem indicates that our emphasis must be twofold. We must create full employment or we must create incomes. People must be made consumers by one method or the other. Once they are placed in this position, we need to be concerned that the potential of the individual is not wasted. New forms of work that enhance the social good will have to be devised for those for whom traditional jobs are not available. In 1879, Henry George anticipated this state of affairs when he wrote in Progress and Poverty, the fact is that the work which improves the condition of mankind the work which extends knowledge and increases power and enriches literature and elevates thought is not done to secure living. It is not the work of slaves driven to that task either by the task of that of a taskmaster or by animal necessities. It is the work of men who somehow find a form of work that brings a security for its own sake. In a state of society where want is abolished, work of this sort could be enormously increased. And we are likely to find that the problem of housing education, instead of preceding the elimination of poverty, will themselves be affected if poverty is first abolished. The poor transformed into purchasers will do a great deal on their own to alter housing decay. Negroes who have a double disability will have a greater effect on discrimination when they have the additional weapon of cash to use in their struggle. Beyond these advantages, 
a host of positive psychological changes inevitably will result from widespread economic security. The dignity of the individual will flourish when the decisions concerning his life are in his own hands, when he has the assurance that his income is stable and certain, and when he knows that he has the means to seek self-improvement, personal conflicts between husband, wife, and children will diminish when the unjust measurement of human worth on a scale of dollars is eliminated. Now our country can do this. John Kenneth Galbraith said that a guaranteed annual income could be done for about $20 billion a year. And I say to you today that if our nation can spend $35 billion a year to fight an unjust evil war in Vietnam and $20 billion to put a man on the moon, it can spend billions of dollars to put God's children on their own two feet right here on earth. Yes, indeed, right? Billions, billions for military, for war. And we don't even think about our own people, taking care of our own people here. The fact that he's, 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 this is from 1967. And we, that we still have our priorities and our values all messed up to where we allow how many how many people die because they don't have health insurance every year? I think it's like forty or fifty thousand because they don't have enough health insurance. They don't they can't afford the deductible. They put off going to see the whatever the reason is. They end up dead because we won't put our money into our people. We'd rather put it into missiles and drones and killing other people. So this should be front and center on our minds here as we go to vote this year. This next clip. Uh, that I want to play you actually is from the same speech, the where do we go from here speech uh, delivered um, in Atlanta, Georgia um, on August 16th, 1967. This is so powerful. I want you to hear a little bit more um, of it uh, because he really gets into some dangerous territory here. And, you know, when you look at this in context now, when you, when you think about how, you know, in nine, 10 months, um, he's going to be dead. He is going to be assassinated. He was turning more and more against the Vietnam War. He was turning more and more against corporate power, Wall Street power, capitalism, evil capitalism, greed, calling out uh, corporate America. He was making a lot of enemies. And, and then in this clip here, he, question, he literally questions the entire capitalist structure and talks about it and, and how it goes hand in hand with racism and poverty and it's it's a uh, it's it's very powerful the way he 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 puts this and remember some of this is about you know life back then when, he, when he's talking about the tenant farmers you know it's not really an issue now with that but it's but he's making the larger point so just um understand it's the 60s but just stick with it here because it's so it's so right on and it is um it's something that we must not shy away from and I know when I say that I'm talking to people over the age of 35, if you're under 35, every poll shows that the majority of young people and young adults uh, believe more in the ideas of socialism or democratic socialism 
and are against the ideas and the greed of capitalism as we know it now in the 21st century. So young people are already there. I'm really just, this piece of it, I mean, I'm just talking to those of you who are um, 45, 50, 60 plus years old. There's a reason why young people have rejected this very, very, very unequal system of, of uh, wealth and the struggle to just survive um, by everybody else. Um, so let me play this clip down um, from, from the same speech uh, given in Atlanta, Georgia, in August of 1967, uh, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. I want to say to you as I move to my conclusion, as we talk about where do we go from here, we must honestly face the fact that the movement must address itself to the question of restructuring the whole of American society. There are 40 million poor people here. One day we must ask the question, why are there 40 million poor people in America? And when you begin to ask that question, you're raising a question about the economic system, about a broader distribution of wealth. When you ask that question, you begin to question the capitalistic economy. And I'm simply saying that more and more, we've got to begin to ask questions about the whole society. We are called upon to help the discouraged beggars in life's marketplace. But one day we must come to see that an edifice which produces beggars needs restructuring. It means that questions must be raised. And you see, my friends, when you deal with this, you begin to ask the question, who owns the oil? You begin to ask the question, who owns the iron ore? You begin to ask the question, why is it that people have to pay water bills in a world that's two-thirds water? These are words that must be said. Now, don't think you have me in a bind today. I'm not talking about communism. What I'm talking about is far beyond communism. My inspiration didn't come from Karl Marx. My inspiration didn't come from Engels. My inspiration didn't come from Trotsky. My inspiration didn't come from Lenin. Yes, I read Communist Manifesto and Das Kapital a long time ago. And I saw that maybe Marx didn't follow Hegel enough. He took his dialectics, but he left out his idealism and his spiritualism, and he went over to a German philosopher by the name of Feuerbach and took his materialism and made it into a system that he called dialectical materialism. I have to reject that. What I'm saying to you this morning, communism forgets that life is individual. Capitalism forgets that life is social. And the kingdom of brotherhood is found neither in the thesis of communism nor the antithesis of capitalism, but in a higher synthesis. It's found in a higher synthesis. 
that come combines the truths of both. Now, when I say question in the whole society, it means ultimately coming to see that the problem of racism, the problem of economic exploitation, and the problem of war are all tied together. These are the triple evils that are interrelated. And if you will let me be a preacher just a little bit, one day, one night a juror came to Jesus, and he wanted to know what he could do to be saved. Jesus didn't get bogged down on the kind of isolated approach of what you shouldn't do. Jesus didn't say, now, Nicodemus, you must stop lying. He didn't say, Nicodemus, now, you must not commit adultery. He didn't say, now, Nicodemus, you must stop cheating if you are doing that. He didn't say, Nicodemus, you must stop drinking liquor if you are doing that excessively. He said something altogether different because Jesus realized something basic. That if a man will lie, he will steal. And if a man will steal, he will kill. So instead of just getting bogged down on one thing, Jesus looked at him and said, Nicodemus, you must be born again. In other words, your whole structure must be changed. A nation that will keep people in slavery for 244 years will thingify them and make them things. And therefore, they will exploit them and poor people generally, economically. And a nation that will exploit economically will have to have foreign investments and everything else, and it will have to use its military might to protect them. All of these problems are tied together. What I'm saying today is that we must go from this convention and say, America, you must be born again. So I conclude by saying today that we have a task and let us go out with a divine dissatisfaction. Let us be dissatisfied until America will no longer have a high blood pressure of creeds and an anemia of deeds. Let us be dissatisfied until the tragic walls that separate the outer city of wealth and comfort from the inner city of poverty and despair shall be crushed by the battering rams of the forces of justice. Let us be dissatisfied until they live on the outskirts of hope, brought into the metropolis of daily security. Let us be dissatisfied until slums are cast into the junk heaps of history and every family will live in a decent sanitary home, let us be dissatisfied 
until the dark yesterdays of segregated schools will be transformed into bright tomorrows of quality integrated education. Let us be dissatisfied until integration is not seen as a problem, but as an opportunity to participate in the beauty of diversity. Let us be dissatisfied until men and women, however black they may be, will be judged on the basis of the content of their character, not on the basis of the color of their skin. Let us be dissatisfied. Let us be dissatisfied until every state capital be housed by a governor who will do justly, who will love mercy, and who will walk humbly with his God. Let us be dissatisfied until from every city hall justice will roll down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. Let us be dissatisfied until that day when the lion and the lamb shall lie down together. And every man will sit under his own vine and fig tree, and none shall be afraid. Let us be dissatisfied. Until men will recognize that out of one blood, God made all men to dwell upon the face of the earth. Let us be dissatisfied until that day when nobody will shout white power, when nobody will shout black power, but everybody will talk about God's power and human power. And I must confess, my friends, the roll ahead will not always be smooth. There will still be rocket paces of frustration and meandering points of bewilderment. There will be inevitable setbacks here and there. There will be those moments when the buoyancy of hope will be transformed into the fatigue of despair. Our dreams will sometime be shattered. And our ethereal hopes blasted, we may again with tear-drenched eyes have to stand before the beard of some courageous civil rights worker whose life will be snuffed out by the dastardly acts of bloodthirsty mobs. But difficult and painful as it is, we must walk on in the days ahead with an audacious faith in the future. And as we continue our chartered course, we may gain consolation from the words so nobly left by that great black bot, who was also a great freedom fighter of yesterday, James Weldon Johnson. Yeah. Stony the road we trod, yeah. bitter the chastening rod felt in the days when hope unborn had died. Yeah. Yet with a steady beat have not our weary feet Come to the place for which our father sighed. We have come over the way that with tears has been watered. We have come treading our past through the blood of the slaughtered. Out from the gloomy past, till now we stand at last. Where the bright gleam of our bright star is cast. Let this affirmation be our ringing cry. 
It will give us the courage to face the uncertainties of the future. It will give our tired feet new strength as we continue our forward stride toward the city of freedom. When our days become dreary with low hovering clouds of despair, when our nights become darker than a thousand midnights, let us remember that there is a creative force in this universe working to pull down the gigantic mountains of evil, a power that is able to make a way out of no way and transform dark yesterdays into bright tomorrows. Let us realize that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. Let us realize that William Cullen Bryant is right. Truth crushed the earth will rise again. Let us go out realizing that the Bible is right. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. Whatsoever the man soweth, that shall he also reap. This is our hope for the future. With this faith, we will be able to sing in some not-too-distant tomorrow with a cosmic past tense. We have overcome. We have overcome deep in my heart. I did believe we would overcome. The three evils of our society that have to be eliminated. Racism, militarism, and this unjust economic system that is called capitalism. This is the Martin Luther King that uh, you will not hear from today, but it is what he spoke about um, his entire career, his entire life, um, of the injustice of this economic system that is um, not democratic, not agreed upon by the majority of the people. Most people don't have a say in what's happening with their economy. It's left in the hands of of the, of the few, and he saw that, that that things would never really, really, really change unless we changed that, unless we had a more democratic economy. Um, it's very powerful stuff. Um, I want to I play for you a, um, a clip that's not uh, from a speech, but from an appearance on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson in February of 1968. Um, on this particular night, uh, Johnny had the night off, and I believe in this case, if I remember correctly, he had the week off, and he invited Harry Belafonte, um, one of the great uh, singers, actors, activists, um, uh, political icons and heroes of the uh, 20th and 21st century, uh, the great Harry Belafonte, uh, uh, subbing in for Johnny Carson as the host that night. Now, you got to think about this. Harry Belafonte is a black man. Um, guest hosting The Tonight Show in 1968. I mean, that, uh, you know, I have a kind of a memory of that, but you got to believe that's that was a kind of a radical thing to do. And maybe when we have him on, uh, he's, he's agreed to come on uh, the podcast here on, on to Rumble um, sometime in the near future, and we'll ask him about about his, the, the guest hosting for Johnny Carson, amongst many, many other things that I'd love to talk to him about and love for you to hear what he has to say now in his 90s and, and still as a spry and uh, as great as ever. But that night, he must have obviously had something to do with booking uh, the guests. That night, he, he has on Martin Luther King uh, Jr. And King comes out onto, onto the Tonight Show stage uh, with uh, 
Skitch, Hen- Skitch Henderson and the band playing them out. Um, da dum dum da da. And now here's Martin Luther King. <laughs> and and uh, it wasn't quite like that, but I just like remembering that sort of thing. Anyways, um, so King sits down, and um, you can you can um, I think the I think the full there's on YouTube somewhere a full clip of his appearance that night. But I just want you to hear these two minutes and thirty five seconds as uh, King tells Harry Belafonte what he's up to in this year of nineteen sixty eight, what he's planning to do in the spring, and and the this key injustice about the way our economy is. Uh, and how that needs to change. This is on February 8th, 1968, less than eight weeks, two months before he's assassinated. Martin Luther King Jr. on The Tonight Show. I guess I could use some of this time to get into pleasantries and talk about uh, the many experiences I've had with you, not only here, but in Europe and other places. What do you have in store for us this summer? That's a good question. Well, I don't know about the summer, huh? I guess I should begin with what we have in store for the spring. I feel that we are in the midst of the most critical period in our nation, and the economic problem is probably the most serious problem confronting the Negro community. And I might say the most serious problem confronting poor people generally, and I don't want to be narrow about this, talking only about the black poor in our country, because I must be concerned about Puerto Ricans who are poor, Mexican-Americans, American Indians, and Appalachian whites. And we are confronting a major depression uh, in the poor community. And I think the time has come to bring to bear the power of the direct action, the nonviolent direct action movement, on the basic economic conditions that we face all over the country. Nonviolence has been a tremendous force in grappling with the social problem of legal segregation and the syndrome of deprivation surrounding that system. And, of course, it has been a major force in grappling with the political problem of the denial of the right to vote. But in winning victories like the Civil Rights Bill of 64 and the Voting Rights Bill of 1965 around uh, the issue of segregation and voting rights, we discovered that uh, these uh, legislative strides Uh, did very little to improve the lot of the millions of Negroes in the ghettos of the North and in the nation generally. In other words, it did very little to penetrate the lower depths of Negro deprivation uh, in communities all over. The final clip I'm playing for you today here on Rumble um, is um, from a speech that Martin Luther King Jr., uh, gave on August 31st, 1967 at a conference in Chicago. Uh, the speech is called The Three Evils of Society. It sort of builds on what he said a few weeks earlier in the speech you just heard from about the intertwining of these these three evils of racism and war and our economic system. And um, 
and he decries the idea that that what we have actually is socialism for the rich and capitalism for the poor. And the irony of this and the hypocrisy of it is was, I think, too much for him to bear. And he just, he's in the final weeks of his life now, and he's speaking out against this again. This will not be played on the evening news tonight. This will not be played at most tributes uh, to him. Um, but it... Um, I mean, in this, you'll hear in this clip here where he says that the uh, uh, the fact is is that capitalism was built on the exploitation and the suffering of black slaves. This myth of how we built this country in its early days, you know, we did we didn't want to face the fact that um, we did this in an evil way, in an immoral way. So he was on a mission later that summer in 1968. He had planned to have what was called the Poor People's March in Washington, D.C., and to really start you know, training his focus on the fact that unless we fix economic injustice, we will not have any other kind of justice. Of course, um, that march did go on eventually, but um, he had been killed, and uh, it did not become what uh, people hoped that it would be. So let me play this for you here now, the final clip on our podcast today on Martin Luther King Day um, from a speech given in Chicago by Martin Luther King Jr. called The Three Evils of Our Society, um, August 31st, 1967. Yes, the hour is dark. Evil comes forth in the guise of good. It is a time of double talk when men in high places have a high blood pressure of deceptive rhetoric and an anemia of concrete performance. We crowd against welfare handouts to the poor but generously approve an oil depletion allowance to make the rich richer. Six Mississippi plantations receive more than a million dollars a year not to plant cotton, but no provision is made to feed the tenant farmer who is put out of work by the government subsidy. Crowning achievement in hypocrisy must go to those staunch Republicans and Democrats of the Midwest and West who were given land by our government when they came here as immigrants from Europe. They were given education through the land-grant colleges. They were provided with agricultural agents to keep them abreast of farming trends. They were granted low interest loans to aid in the mechanization of their farms. And now that they have succeeded in becoming successful, they are paid not to farm. And these are the same people who now say to black people whose ancestors were brought to this country in chains, 
and who were emancipated in 1863 without being given land to cultivate or bread to eat, that they must pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. What what they truly advocate is socialism for the rich and capitalism for the poor. I wish that I could say that this is just a passing phase in the cycle of our nation's life. Certainly times of war, times of reaction throughout the society. But I suspect that we are now experiencing the coming to the surface of a triple-pronged sickness that has been lurking within our body politic from its very beginning. That is the sickness of racism, excessive materialism and militarism. Not only is this our nation's dilemma, it is the plague of Western civilization. As early as 1906, W.E.B. Du Bois prophesied that the problem of the 20th century will be the problem of the color line. Now as we stand two-thirds into this crucial period of history, we know full well that racism is still that hound of hell which dogs the tracks of our civilization. Ever since the birth of our nation, white America has had a schizophrenic personality on the question of race. She has been torn between cells a self in which she proudly professed the great principles of democracy and a self in which she madly practiced the antithesis of democracy. This tragic duality has produced a strange indecisiveness and ambivalence toward the Negro, causing America to take a step backward simultaneously with every step forward on the question of racial justice to be at once attracted to the Negro and repelled by him, to love and to hate him. There has never been a solid, unified, and determined thrust to make justice a reality for Afro-Americans. The step backward has a new name today. It is called the White Backlash. But the white backlash is nothing new. It is the surfacing of old prejudices, hostilities, and ambivalences that have always been there. It was caused neither, it was caused neither by the cry of black power, nor by the unfortunate re recent wave of riots in our cities. The white backlash of today is rooted in the same problem that has characterized America ever since the black man landed in chains on the shores of this nation. This does not imply that all white Americans are racist. Far from it. 
many white people have through a deep moral compulsion fought long and hard for racial justice. Nor does it mean that America has made no progress in her attempt to cure the body politic of the disease of racism, or that the dogma of racism has not been considerably modified in recent years. However, for the good of America, it is necessary to refute the idea that the dominant ideology in our country, even today, is freedom and equality, while racism is just an occasional departure from the norm on the part of a few bigoted extremists. Racism can well be that corrosive evil that will bring down the curtain on Western civilization. Arnold Tornby has said that some 26 civilizations have risen upon the face of the earth. Almost all of them have descended into the junk heaps of destruction. The decline and fall of these civilizations, according to Tornby, was not caused by external invasions, but by internal decay. They failed to respond creatively to the challenges impinging upon them. If America does not respond creatively to the challenge to banish racism, some future historian will have to say that a great civilization died because it lacked the soul and commitment to make justice a reality for all men. The second aspect of our afflicted society is extreme materialism. An Asian writer has portrayed our dilemma in candid terms. He says, you call your thousand material devices labor-saving machinery, yet you are forever busy with the multiplying of your machinery. You grow increasingly fatigued, anxious, nervous, dissatisfied. Whatever you have, you want more. And wherever you are, you want to go somewhere else. Your devices are neither time-saving nor soul-saving machinery. There are so many sharp spurs which urge you on to invent more machinery and to do more business. This tells us something about our civilization that cannot be cast aside as a prejudice charge by an Eastern thinker who is jealous of Western prosperity. We cannot escape the indictment. This does not mean that we must turn back the clock of scientific progress. No one can overlook the wonders that science has wrought for our lives. The automobile will not abdicate in favor of the horse and buggy of the train in favor of the stagecoach, of the tractor in favor of the hand plow, of the scientific method in favor of ignorance and superstition. But our moral lag must be redeemed when scientific power outruns moral power, we end up with guided missiles and misguided men. <coughs> The 
when we foolishly maximize the minimum and minimize the maximum, we sign the warrant for our own day of doom. It is this moral lag in our thing-oriented society that blinds us to the human realities around us and encourages us in the greed and exploitation which create the sector of poverty in the midst of wealth. Again, we have deluded ourselves into believing the myth that capitalism grew and prospered out of the Protestant ethic of hard work and sacrifice. The fact is that capitalism was built on the exploitation and suffering of black slaves. and continues to thrive on the exploitation of the poor, both black and white, both here and abroad. If Negroes and poor whites do not participate in the free flow of wealth within our economy, they will forever be poor giving their energy, their talents, and their limited funds to the consumer market, but reaping few benefits and services in return. The way to end poverty is to end the exploitation of the poor, ensure them, ensure them a fair share of the government's services and the nation's resources. I propose recently that a national agency be established to provide employment for everyone needing it. Nothing is more socially inexcusable than unemployment in this age. In the 30s, when the nation was bankrupt, it instituted such an agency, the WPA. In the present conditions of a nation glutted with resources, it is barbarous to condemn people desiring work to soul-sapping inactivity and poverty. And I am convinced that even this one massive act of concern would do more than all the state police and armies of the nation to quell riots and steal hatreds. And the tragedy is that our materialistic culture does not possess the statesmanship necessary to do it. Victor Hugo could have been thinking of 20th century America when he wrote, there's always more misery among the lower classes than there is humanity in the higher classes. <laughs> the time has come for America to face the inevitable choice between materialism and humanism, we must devote at least as much to our children's education and the health of the poor as we do to the care of our automobiles and the building of beautiful, impressive hotels. <laughs> we must also realize that the problems of racial injustice and economic injustice cannot be solved without a radical redistribution 
of political and economic power. Powerful words. Um, and I'm really happy to be sharing this with you here today on Martin Luther King Day, um, turning the microphone over to him, so to speak. Um, he'd be 91 today if he was still alive. And, um, well, he's missed, he's missed a lot. He's missed some good things. He's missed some good things. And he's, a lot of things didn't happen and didn't come to be. I don't want to say it because he was no longer with us. We, there have been other great leaders and other uh, great movements. But um, any of us who remember or of an age, um, we know that uh, something very powerful went away that day. And um, we have really nothing, no excuses and nothing else to say except um, to uh, to continue to pick up that mantle and to charge forward uh, for a more equitable society, the one that he fought for. I just want to close by, I couldn't find a tape of, of this. This is a, a speech he gave to his staff in 1966, uh, two years before he died. And just listen, just listen to where, because he was always talking about this and they would never, you never saw this on the news. He said, you can't talk about solving the economic problem of black people without talking about billions of dollars. You can't talk about ending the slums without first saying that profit must be taken out of the slums. And then he goes on to say, if you're saying that, if you start talking like that, he says, you're really tampering and getting on dangerous ground because you are messing with folk then. You are messing with folk then. You are messing with captains of industry. Now this means that we are treading in difficult water because I, it really means that we are saying that something is wrong with capitalism. We are saying that something is wrong with capitalism, that there has to be a better distribution of wealth. And maybe, maybe America must move toward a democratic socialism. Those are the words of Martin Luther King Jr. in a speech to his staff in 1966. It was as consistent as his very first words in that letter to his then fiance Coretta Scott, back in 1952, where he told her his deep, deep feelings about an unjust economic system. We should not be afraid to play these words, my friends in the media. Do not be afraid to quote them. Don't just talk about Martin Luther King in the way that you want to talk about him. I should, I should say I'm speaking to white people in the media, especially the way that, that you want to crown Martin Luther King in our image and likeness when he was anything but us. He had love. He had love of white people. He was a, a person of love, yes, but he was not going to pull his punch when it came to talking about how our problems with race in this society would never truly be solved until we were willing to say that we all 
deserve a seat at the table, and everyone deserves a slice of the pie. And until we make that happen, the problems of race and problems of militarism, our lack of decent health care that's available to all without the fear of losing their home if they get sick, the problems of, of education, the fact that, that the minimum wage, I mean, we started talking about raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour you know, three, four years ago. It should be 20 or $25 an hour now. We all have to keep this fight going. We all need to honor Martin Luther King. Yes, but we need to honor ourselves and the people living in this country and on this planet right now. And we can do that um, by not being afraid to discuss the fact that, that this form of economic system that we operate under is vicious and unfair. And we need to rethink this into a different way, a more democratic economy, whether you want to call it democratic socialism or you want to call it whatever you want to call it, call it whatever you want to call it. Call it the call it the party of FDR, Franklin Roosevelt. They called him a socialist too because he believed in social security. He believed in Medicare. He believed that there should be unemployment insurance should you lose your job. Basic, basic things. Put whatever label on it that you want. But you know, you know in your heart that we cannot, we can't survive with each other unless we come to an understanding that this basic core value of ours has to change. Thank you for spending these uh, moments with me here on Martin Luther King Jr. Day 2020. And um, thank you for being part of this Rumble podcast. I'm grateful to you for listening. Please tell other people about it. And we'll see you very soon. Well, we are not afraid.